Hey, everybody, welcome to the Addiction Unlimited podcast, where you get to learn everything you want to know about addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Angela Pugh, co-founder of Kansas City Recovery, life coach, and recovering alcoholic. To learn more about me, you can listen to episode zero on your podcast app or find us on the web at addictionunlimited.com. OMG, my friends, this is exciting. This guest, I know I say it every time, but I'm telling you, I got a good one coming for you. Today we have Archie Messersmith Bunting. You may know him as the feelings guy. And I got to tell you, the Instagram caught my attention for so many reasons. And you guys know I love Instagram. I'm a little obsessed. Uh, So let's take a minute and welcome Archie to the show. Archie, thank you so much for coming on and doing an episode with me. Yes, I'm excited. (laughs) But can you imagine? Can you imagine we're like, y'all, I couldn't find anyone. So I just got this guy. This is going to be crappy. I mean, can you imagine if we did that? (laughs) It makes you laugh. Yeah. If I opened every episode going, okay, this is going to be a mediocre guest at best. Lower... (laughs) Lower your expectations, everybody. This one is going to be trying. (laughs) But that's not the case. You got a live one today. Um, So uh, as you said, uh, I am the feelings guy. And uh, I own my own speaking consulting business called Archie Cares. And my goal is to reframe the perception surrounding mental illness, suicide, and addiction by focusing on feelings. Um, I discovered that for me, that was where the big gap was that, um, I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't remember my high school conversation about feelings. Like, I don't remember that at all. So like there was this big void of like learning. And so that's, that's how I, I work with, um, with, with people today talking about feelings. It's so interesting. You know, when you think back on high school or even college, really, sure. I don't know that they, teach us anything super useful. You know, (laughs) I was just talking about this the other day. I'm like, they're not teaching us like budgeting and being smart with money, living within our means. They're not teaching us emotional intelligence, feelings, Mm -hmm. coping skills. Like where's all of that stuff? Like that's what I need to go out and be a successful human. And nobody teaches you that, you know, like you have to seek out the information. Which is why one of the things why I'm so grateful for my recovery, because if it wasn't for being an alcoholic, (laughs) I never would have been put in the fast lane of having to get my act together, you know? Right. That's you. I think that's so true. And what's what's the reason I'm giggling is because I've been in the world of higher education for almost 20 years, like 15, 20 years, either as a volunteer or as a professional, but I was always on the student affairs side. So for those of you listening, they're like, what are you talking about? In the in at colleges, at least in America, there is a faculty side, and then everything else is student affairs. And so I was always on the student affairs side, student programming, residence life, fraternity and sorority life, all those sort of things, which is where all of those things you just talked about happen. But you have to seek those things out. Right. Like when I'm going to like chemistry, well, actually, I would never go to that class because I, <laughs> I that wouldn't happen. But when I was going to some class, like that's not what we were learning. And so there's this there's this world out there in higher education that if you don't know to look for it, or if you don't have time, 
if you're mm-hmm. working or if you're like have kids or you know what I'm saying? Like those things aren't really available necessarily if you got to like leave school to pick up a kid and all that sort of stuff. So there's so much that we could be learning mm-hmm. that we're not. And so that I feel not. like I spend a lot of time re-educating people on things that we probably should have learned a long time ago, but we just didn't. For sure. I totally agree. I'll tell you something you said that really stood out to me that I fell in love with and I am going to mess it up. So you'll have to correct me, but you said something, I think I was watching one of your videos or something. You said there's a difference between mental illness and mental health. Mm -hmm. And that resonated with me. Mm -hmm. It's such a powerful statement because we do use those interchangeably. I think most Mm -hmm. people and it, it, they are different things. Can you expound on that a little bit for everybody? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm so excited that somebody watched a video. Um, so that <laughs> makes me very excited because um, as you know, it takes some time and I've, I've, um, I've made a commitment. I'm going to do reels. I'm going to do a reel for the next 30 days because listen, this, like I just had somebody say, they were like, it's 90 days. And I was like, listen, boo, if I cannot put a needle in my arm for 90 days, I can literally do anything. So that's kind of the way I approach the world today. Like, okay, I can do a reel a day for 30 days. I can see what this looks like. So come along for the journey. But um, (laughs) yes, I I realized that as, as the conversation around mental wellness becomes more mainstream, which I'm grateful for. I mean, pause and reflect, I'm grateful for. But I, I would, I noticed like on the news and especially when Naomi Osaka decided to remove herself from, I think it was the French Open, the French Open, um, like major tennis star saying, I can't, I'm not doing this because this isn't good for my mental health. People would be talking and I knew what they were, what they meant to say was mental health, but they would say mental illness. And those things are very different. Mm-hmm. So the World Health Organization equates mental health to physical health. Like we all have it. Everyone has physical health. We all have mental health. All of us. If you have a mental illness, then you have a diagnosis. So this thing, those things are very, very different. And, and so I also think that another, another word we could begin to use is a mental health challenge. So just like, like right now I have a sprained ankle. I sprained my ankle on vacation, right? So I have a physical health challenge in my left ankle. Well, I know exactly what to do for that. I need to rest it. I need to ice it. I need to not go running or dancing, which is what I really was doing. I need to not be (laughs) dancing around the living room with my, with my child. But like, on the mental health challenge side of things, like it, it doesn't equate exactly, but it should. Like sometimes you sprain your brain. Sometimes you sprain your emotions. Sometimes you sprain your feelings. And it's the same thing. If there is a human being that when you're around them, you're like, oh my gosh, and it takes more energy, you've just sprained that relationship. So just back off a little bit, remove yourself ice yourself from the relationship. Don't dance around the exact same things. And when we, if we begin to think about things like that, put it in, put it in words, people understand. I think we'll have more success. People understanding mental health challenges and mental wellness. Yeah. I love that. That's so powerful. How, what happened for you? What was your experience that got you to this space? It's a great question. Uh, well, I mean, part of it begins in recovery. And um, it's funny, I was I, I was doing an episode for myself, I was interviewing a guest before this, and we were talking about the adage, which I'm sure you've heard, because if you've been in program for more than a minute, you've heard, you know, what? we're going to put everything else on the shelf. 
We're just going to focus on the drugs. We're going to put everything else on the shelf. We're just going to focus on the drugs now. Okay. That didn't work for me because I had a enormous undiagnosed mental illness. So I felt completely, number one, I'm like shooting crystal meth in my veins, number one. Number two, like I have this mental illness. I mean, I felt insane. Well, I kind of was, but we were putting everything else on the shelf. And, and I understand that it's not the place. I don't, I don't believe it's the place of a 12 step program to like give you therapy, but I, it would have been nice for someone to have encouraged me to like, why don't you go, but no, we're going to put everything else on the shelf. So I, I really floundered a lot in the beginning, trying to figure out how in the world to stay sober when my brain was just like imploding uh, of emotions. And so I had that experience. And then when I did begin to put time together, I, I, I realized that like, I wasn't waking up happy. Like I managed to stop doing drugs. Check. I found this amazing human that decided to love me for all my, all my warts check. And like, I was like, what is going on? This is not what's supposed to be happening. But I realized that like, I mean, you've only, we've only been talking for like what, 10 minutes. You probably realize like this big personality I have, I was trying to push it all inside because that's what the rest of the world expected. I wasn't listening to my feelings. I wasn't leaning into my feelings. I wasn't being concerned about your feelings. And when I finally started doing that, the magic began to happen for me. And so then I dug in and realized there was a lot there and a lot we weren't talking about. So as you progress in your recovery journey and you're staying clean and sober, because that particular drug too, you're talking about meth, right? Meth has a <laughs> special knack for making you feel insane. So, you don't say. <laughs> so as you progress in your journey of clean and sober and really clearing your body and getting a clear signal, as I call it, I got to keep mm. the signal clear. Mm. What, how did you start to separate? Like what was the drug and what was mental illness? Yeah, well, I mean, that that took some professional help. And so if you're listening and you're thinking, hmm, I'm going to encourage you to find a professional uh, because, you know, my my first sponsor used to say to me, um, your 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 brain currently is like a bad neighborhood, like never go in there without a flashlight and don't go in alone. And although in today's in today's like PC terms, that's probably not a very PC saying anymore, but it made complete sense and, and still makes complete sense in the yeah. connotation that we're using it. And I needed some I needed help. I needed help to figure out uh, because in the beginning, they were just throwing medicine at me. Like for a while, they thought sure. that I was, you know, that I had bipolar affective disorder. And so they gave me the medicine you take for that. And I had a drug rash, like my whole body broke out. And I was like, well, this isn't helpful. So, so after a while, I was like, can we stop with the pills? Like if the drug addict is telling you to stop with the pills, then like, right. listen, like listen to him and let's figure something else out. Yeah. Listen, there's a real issue when an addict is telling you to stop I mean, with the pills, like something is desperately wrong. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it, it took, it took a while. And, and, you know, it, it also took, um, you know, when I say that I want to, you know, reframe the perception, I want people to understand the the brain of an addict. And so, you know, I try to share very openly. And, you know, a couple of months, I guess it was back in the wintertime, um, our son was, I guess he had just turned two. And um, we needed to give him some like honey in the evening because he had this cough. And so, you know, my husband is putting him um, to bed. I go downstairs to get the honey. And we have to use these little baby syringes to get the honey. Well, when I tell you 
that I got triggered. Like, I can't even tell you, like even kind of now my head is go, kind of going. And so I, and I felt like a horrible piece of shit person that, you know, I'm getting medicine for my child, which I have dreamed of having my entire life. And my brain is thinking about getting high. And so I, I put him to bed and then I came, I got on Instagram and I said, this may sound like madness to you, but I want to explain to those of you that don't understand what this is like, that these things come up when we don't want them to. And so today what I do is go, of course, of course, I'm going to be triggered by a child's syringe. Of course I am. And then I give myself some grace and I move on. But that is not what I would have done five years ago. I would have like spun and spun and been angry and all this sort of stuff. Like, of course, I think about doing drugs. I'm a drug addict. Of course I do. So it's, you know, but, but that has taken, a, that's been a journey and has, has come with professional help. Yeah. I so appreciate you saying that too, because you're exactly right. Of course, we're going to think about those things, right? I mean, it's just, it's a huge piece of who I am. It's not my entire identity, right? Being a drunk is not my entire identity. Sure. It is a hugely important piece of it that I'm very proud of, you know, but I have to have that awareness that of course this stuff is going to pop in my head. I was telling one of my groups a while back, I was watching this show on Netflix or something and, you know, the greatest love of my life was tequila. And I start watching this show and it turns out it's this family that owns a tequila company. And all of a sudden they're like going through the distillery and the agave plants and my little drunken brain, right. Starts romanticizing tequila. And I was like, you guys, I had to turn that damn show off. Like yep. I couldn't even watch the show. And I say this to, to clients too, like, I think about it in a way of protecting my brain mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I don't know what the thing is that out of the blue, my brain is going to attach to that thing and it's going to cause a craving or a thought or a something. So I go to great lengths to protect my brain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just don't, I don't expose it or overexpose it. If I do mm -hmm. expose it, I try to do something to counteract it. You know, like just to be mindful mm -hmm. of that is such a huge piece of mm -hmm. this. But, but that takes time. For it, sure. It, and, and so if, if you're listening and you're new or you're trying to figure it out and you're like, well, this guy said, of course I'm supposed to think about it. Okay. That is what I said. But in the beginning, trust and believe that if I did not tell someone about that, I'm going to be back to using within two or three days. Like, yeah, you like can't there's, keep there, it. You can't there's a keep it there's to a difference. yourself. Yeah. There's a, there's a difference now in, in being, for I mean, for both of us being separated from the drugs and alcohol to be able to have a rational understanding of the way the brain works. I didn't, have, I didn't have a rational understanding <laughs> about boo back in, back in the beginning at all. There was no rational. So, you know, being able to pick up my phone and I understand that, you know, you know, when I, when I do have conversations, I remember the beginning and like, remember how heavy that phone was back in the day? Like it weighed oh like a brick. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Picking up to call somebody. Nobody ever wants to call anybody. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and what's the, when you hear constantly, well, I didn't want to bother you. I didn't want to bother you. I'm like, dude, I have dedicated <laughs> my whole freaking life to this. Okay. Don't worry about bothering <laughs> me. It's not about bothering me. This is all I do. Yeah. <laughs> It's yeah. what I love. It's what I was put on this planet for. You're not bothering me. <laughs>
It is so hard though. And you're, and it does take practice. You know, you're right. It's not understanding that you're going to have thoughts and you're going to be triggered and whatever. It, it does take practice and figuring those things out. Of course, it's part of the journey and you cannot keep it to yourself. And I always tell my clients, like, if you don't tell on yourself when something's really, when something has come up for you, whatever it is, if you don't tell on yourself and share that with somebody, what a part of you is doing is really protecting your option to act on it. Mm -hmm. You're not creating accountability for yourself. You're not processing it, getting out of you, right? If you're not doing those things, you're really protecting this option somewhere in the back of your head. And, and that will come back and bite you too at some point. Well, let me, let me say from experience, that is true. Um, I also heard it somewhere, somewhere along the way that, um, the worst thing for an addict or alcoholic is, is a successful relapse. Um, meaning that you were able to get in and get out without anybody finding out. Child, when I tell you that never worked because if I got away with it, the one time I was like, Ooh, I did it. But so so then the next time though, it was always like significantly worse and Mm -hmm. there was no way people were going to find out. So listen, if you're, if you're serious about, and you like to be serious for today, if you're serious mm-hmm. for today about doing this thing, just telling yourself, if you're listening to this and you're like, I should tell myself, pause the podcast, <laughs> call somebody and tell them the thing and then come back and finish. Cause I'm sure we'll say some more great things, <laughs> but I mean, right. it's, it, it's, it's such a simple thing, not easy, but such a simple thing. Um, that is, in my opinion, a requirement to long-term sobriety. For sure. You know, it's the same thing when you get in trouble. Like I had all these times that I got pulled over when I really deserved a DUI and for various reasons didn't get one. You know, I had one time, um, I really wasn't drunk and I stopped at the convenience store and a cop happened to pull in and we were chatting. Like I had had a couple of drinks. I definitely wasn't drunk. I wasn't pulled over, but he just said, he's like, would you do me a favor and just have somebody come get you? Just leave your car here. And I was like, absolutely. I'll do that. Um, but I just had all these weird situations and I did have a couple of times that I got pulled over and was let go or another times a cop let when I really deserved a DUI, let me have somebody pick me up. Um, And it's the same thing when you get away with it, it builds this sense of, well, I did it that time. I didn't get the DUI that time or, well, sure, I fell down, but I didn't get hurt that bad. Or I crashed my car, but nobody knew about it. You know, it was a parked car I hit or whatever. It builds this false sense of it's okay and you can do it again. If you have a little relapse and you get away with it and nobody knows, somewhere in the back of your head, you're going to be thinking, I can do it again. You can do it again. Yep. And it, and this thing is progressive. Let's remember that my friends. <laughs> so you're not going to get away with it long. <laughs> so where, where in your life were you, how old were you when you realized you really had a problem? Yeah. Uh, that's a, that's a, that's a great way to word that question. Um, well, I mean, it was a problem from the beginning. Um, And I say that because I grew up in the South and I grew up in the deep South in the Southern Baptist church being super gay. Um, Now I wasn't like, I mean, well, I've always been gay, but like they didn't know that I was gay. 
I mean, let's be clear about that. I've always been gay. Uh, and you didn't just decide that yesterday. I didn't like, oh, I'll be gay today. No, it's not the way it works, people. Just in case you didn't know, it's not the way it works. Um, it, and so the first time that I tried drugs, which was, um, it's funny. I'd only, I'd only, I'd only been drunk once before I tried hard drugs, which is kind of comical. Um, it was after college and it, it literally made every hurt go away. Like it was the biggest band aid for all of the pain inside. So why wouldn't I do that again? Right. Mm -hmm. So when I moved to New York um, and was performing and I was on the road touring, uh, you know, I, I did um, what I would consider club drugs, you know, that everybody was doing mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. But I do remember, I do remember the first time that I ever smoked meth. Cause that, that just like, Smoking a drug just never like that seems like huge drug addicts. Like it, it was funny, like months later, I'm shooting up. But like, I remember thinking this is going to be a problem. And it, it was. And like, I guess, you know, we can find things to be grateful for today. I am grateful that my journey spiraled fast. Um, you know, it was a very quick journey to the basement. Uh, and, you know, they say that the, the pattern is fun, fun and problems and problems my problems, just significant problems kicked in quickly. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of was to the point I didn't have a choice, like either I'm going to do something different or I'm going to be homeless. So what are we going to do? Um, and that's when that's when the revolving door of recovery began for me. So did you realize like when you said, when I asked that question and you said it was a problem from the beginning, is that a realization you had later? Like yeah. looking back, looking yeah. back. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, in the I, beginning it was just fun. It was right. Right. Yeah. Cause I had the same experience. Like now it, you know, in my recovery, of course, hindsight's 2020. Like right. I can look back and see where my drinking, like I drank alcoholically from the beginning, not in how much I drank, because I was a new drinker. So it's not like I had a huge tolerance, right? Like right. a night of drinking was probably three or four beers, you know, right. and it wasn't my sole focus. Like we would go out to go dancing and right. go do things and have some drinks. But now looking back, I'm like, well, damn, I drank every day you know, because I worked in bars. Like that was normal. Everybody <laughs> normal. I was around yeah. drank every day. Yep. There's nothing normal about drinking every day, even if you're only having three or four, you know, right. like that's not, so yeah, I can look back. So I wondered if that was your same experience yeah. in hindsight, yeah. seeing that hindsight. Yeah, for sure. Now, when you decided you had to do it differently <laughs> or be homeless, mm -hmm. <laughs> what was what was the first thing you did? Like, were you freaked out? Were you scared? Did you know exactly what to do? What was that process for you? Uh, no, uh, I did. Well, um, there's a lot of questions. I'm not sure what all the answers are there. So I, I met someone, uh, who was in the program, didn't know it at the time. Um, we met and hooked up and then, um, I thought he was cute. And so we started hanging out and he, I knew that he was in, I knew that he was in something called program. I didn't know what that was. And I knew that he didn't drink and do drugs anymore. I didn't know what that was. And so he, it was very clear that when we were around each other, I wasn't doing it. And so, but then I also just wasn't getting it. I, I wasn't, I wasn't able to like keep it together. And he's like, why don't you just come to, and we, I lived in New York city. He's like, why don't you just come to a meeting with me? And the good thing about New York is that there are like, hundreds of meetings all the time. And there's also lots of meetings specifically for the GLBTQ plus community. So um, went to a meeting and found a lot of people that were just like me. And I was like, oh, um, but I, 
I mean, I, I, I definitely wasn't ready to be done at that point. I just wanted to stop hurting. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, you know, maybe this will be a way to not hurt for a while. But I, when I, when I realized that like something had to change, I, um, he had gone away for the weekend, which equaled, I ended up, you know, using all weekend long. And, um, when he came back to my apartment, um, that I had literally just found a room to rent, I was like laying in bed twitching because I'd been awake for so long. Mm -hmm. And I remember him like climbing on the bed and just, just holding me and saying, listen, I I love you regardless, but this isn't going to work unless you get better. And it was the way that he approached it. That was like, I'm going to love you period. And like, we're still friends today. Um, and I, and I think it's, it's because of our, um, and there, there's many more tumultuous story after that, but I think it was the fact that we both had, you know, program to come back to. And so I thought, okay, let's try this thing. And so that's when I really began to try. Uh, it didn't, it didn't stick for a couple of years, but that's when I actually gave it the the old heave ho. Did you have all those crazy thoughts that so many of us have, like, you know, future tripping, like, how will I be without it? What am I going to do? Will I be funny anymore? Or, you know, am I going to lose all my friends? Did you go through all of those things too? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And and I'll say one that I guess if you don't want to, you can cut it out. But I also didn't know how I was going to have sex. Because for sure, yeah. crystal, crystal meth and sex are so tied together that I had no idea how I was going to have sex over like none. And, and that, that was a big piece for a while. Like how am I supposed to do this? Because when you're high, you're, you're very, very intimate and all this stuff, but it's fake intimacy. It's yeah. not really. And, and, and honestly, I think that's probably what I was more addicted to than the drug, the, the, the fake intimacy and the fake connections that seemed so real. I remember, I remember one time I'd been awake for like five days and I was supposed to leave um, to go, I was supposed to be on an airplane to go overseas to do this like six month contract. And I met this guy and I decided I was in love. And so I called and left a message on the producer's voicemail. They're like, hey, you know, some things have come up. I'm not going to be there. Um, and then, of course, like two days later, when I crashed, I was like, what the crap? And like, luckily that, that man um, knew something was going on. And he was like, listen, Archie, don't, don't say another word. I don't want to know. Just, can you be on a plane to Russia tomorrow? Yes, sir. Um, And we talked about it like years later. And he was like, I knew something was up, but he was like, also, I felt like that if I, if I had just like, I didn't know, I didn't know what would happen if I turn my back on you at that point. And that's, that's Mm -hmm. true. That's a, that's a good point. Um, But yeah, like the, the fake intimacy and the fake relationship and the fake connection is very addictive um, when you're when that's something that you crave anyway. Yeah, and even just in the social anxiety of it, like thinking about just dating, sitting across the table from somebody having dinner can be yep. terrifying. You know, <laughs> yep. more or less like getting in a place where everybody's taking their clothes off. That's a whole nother level. You know? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> whole, yeah, I mean it. It and it it is true today. You know the. I mean, you know, alcohol is a social lubricant. I mean, yeah. that is why every reception known to man, except an AA reception, has alcohol. I mean, that that is why it's there. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's 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 a 
there's so many things that I don't think I realized were going to have to be relearned in the beginning. Thank God. Mm-hmm. Cause if I did, I'd be like, Thank nope, not doing this. God. Yes. I always, I'm like, God, I'm so glad I had no idea what I was in for. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so grateful too, that it just comes in little pieces, right? It's not like you're hit upside the head with, oh my gosh, you have to change every single thing about your whole life and your personality and everything. Like it's not all at once. You know, I'm glad that it comes in little bite-sized yep. pieces but yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Last question. Favorite question. What is your favorite thing about being a sober person? Hmm. Um, my favorite thing. Uh, well, I, you probably get to answer a lot, but I don't miss the headaches. I don't, I don't miss the, the like recovering for five days, but I, I remember in the beginning, people would say like, hi, my name is Angela and I'm a grateful recovering addict. And I'd be like, shut your forking (laughs) mouth. I mean, I just wanted to punch them into the next century because it made no sense. No sense. Yeah. Like, what are you grateful for? We're in this stupid church basement and you're all just (laughs) like whining. Like, what is what is there to be grateful for? And I am one of those <laughs> obnoxious people now who I, I am so grateful for this life. And what's bizarro is that the life I have today would not exist without all that crap. It just wouldn't. It just wouldn't. So I, I love the fact that something that was hellacious in the truest sense of the word has become something that is so beautiful. So beautiful and powerful. I mean, I think too, we are, I believe that we are people with addiction. We are the strongest people built. We are the strongest people out there and what we survive and live through, you know, self-created or not, it is, (laughs) it is quite a feat to get through all of that stuff. And I think once you get on the other side of it and you're on the recovery side and you're starting to use your powers for good instead of evil, it's like, it's limitless. Like what we are capable of as human beings, because we've built so many skills, even through the course of our addiction. It's amazing. Yep. And not only the strongest, the most um, creative, the Mm -hmm. most engine. I mean, like think, I mean, literally think back to all the ways that I tried to find to get money, to get high or to like get invited to some party, like all that creativity that now gets to be funneled into good. Yeah. It's uh, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, it really is. I agree. Okay. Archie, tell everybody one last time how to find you. Of course, you guys know, I will link all of this in the show notes. Sure. The easiest place, just go to my website, which is archiecares.com. Um, and the place that I'm most active, as you've already heard, is Instagram, which is Archie underscore cares. I love that. Archie, thank you again for coming on and spending this time with us. Such a pleasure to get to know you. It has been a joy. Thank you for having me. You've reached the end of another great episode of the Addiction Unlimited podcast. Candid and honest conversation about addiction and recovery. Be sure to visit us at addictionunlimited.com to join the conversation and access show notes and links to everything we talked about. Love this episode? Please take 30 seconds to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes to help us improve and give you the information you want. Thanks for listening. See you next week.